the book of Isaiah, chapter 12, and reading the whole of the chapter. In that day you will say, I will praise you, O Lord. Although you were angry with me, your anger has turned away, and you have comforted me. Surely God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid. The Lord, the Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. In that day you will say, Give thanks to the Lord, call on his name. Make known among the nations what he has done and proclaim his name, proclaim that his name is exalted. Sing to the Lord, for he has done glorious things. Let this be known to all the world. Shout aloud and sing for joy, people of Zion, for great is the Holy One of Israel among you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning, everyone. Morning. Let's pray. Lord, you've inspired the scriptures. Help us to understand them and to live them out. And we thank you for this wonderful passage this morning. Amen. Amen. It is a wonderful passage. Please keep it open in front of you. Isaiah chapter 12. It's... Um, a little song of praise, and it's a real jewel in the heart of Isaiah. There has been a fair amount um, about God's judgment in the previous chapters. Um, it's interspersed, of course, with promises of restoration and uh, return from captivity in Assyria. There's been a hint of the messianic kingdom. Indeed, that little phrase, in that day, that begins the... Um, uh, the reading comes seven times in these early chapters in Isaiah and um, it, it seems to mean when, when God intervenes when God turns up we all know periods like that when you're, it's a service of worship and, and you're just uh, gobsmacked by the Lord turning up in that day points to those sort of things and that in the end has a messianic touch about it as well um, and so in the light of uh, God turning up, uh, Isaiah and his friends burst out in praise in this chapter. Our term card rightly calls it the call to worship. But worship is one of those rather vague words, isn't it? We use it uh, of church and we use it of Lord Mayors <laughs> um, and, and not much else. <laughs> what on earth does it mean? Christians today uh, often talk about uh, holding a worship service. That's strictly a nonsense. But what they, what's meant by it, it's either a liturgy written by experts and recited by the congregation with or without hymns, sermon, and the full attention of the participants, or else it suggests a freewheeling event um, with an opening invitation to worship, hymns and choruses, maybe a choir item, uh, one or two prayers, and an address. On both sides of the Atlantic, though not in Africa or Asia, eyes are firmly on the clock. 
Now that is a travesty of worship. It does nothing to bringing us low before God, to take us out of our petty concerns, to fire us up for the week ahead. It was not worship like that which marked Israel at its best or marked the first Christians. We get an insight into the real meaning of worship when we understand that both in Hebrew and Greek that there are two main words for worship. It's very consistent, two main words. One word means to bow down in awe, to prostrate yourself before the Lord, to kiss his feet. That's what the Persians did in the presence of their so-called divine kings. They would bow down and kiss his feet. That's a picture of total surrender and devotion. You get it referred to in the book of Revelation, where the heavenly beings give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, and they fall down to the ground and worship him who lives forever, crying, you are worthy, you are worth it, O Lord, our God, to receive glory and honor and praise. Now that's the attitude that we are called to when we come to worship. Deep awe and adoration before the majesty and the mystery of God. Isn't that a rebuke to the sort of performance preaching and singing that is so common in our churches in the West? And, and the casual approach to God uh, of which we are often so guilty, bowing down in awe before our maker and redeemer is central to true worship because he is worth it. The other word used in both languages means service. Going out to live for God and try to make him known in a world that frankly doesn't want to know. Now that's not easy but it is an integral part of worship. And of course, there's nothing demeaning about this side of worship, serving God. It's the highest privilege we could have uh, to serve the Lord. Those two characteristics are vital in worship. If there is no sense of awe and wonder before God, and if it results in no practical, joyful service for God, then worship will fail to thrill and worshippers will continue to shop around, unsatisfied, among our earthbound, shifting congregations, or else they will simply drop out. So let's see how those two principles of awe and service work out in Isaiah 12. <clears throat> it's very plain that God himself is the true center of the psalm. We see it in the emotional cry in verse 2, the Lord, the Lord, his personal name, Yahweh. And we see it also in the, in the last verse, great is the Holy One of Israel among you. From the top to the bottom, this little psalm has got the Lord in the center. The Holy One is in our midst when we gather together. And in worship, we come to meet with him. 
And if we don't meet with him, our worship is empty. Very well then, if the Lord who created us and redeemed us is here in our midst, <clears throat> what's our reaction going to be? Surely it must be to bow down in adoring reverence before the Creator and Redeemer. He deserves it. To think that the Holy One is among us, bothers about us, must drive us to our knees in sheer awe. Bowing down is the only appropriate response from creatures to their Creator. And that bowing down has got several strands, like colors really in a rainbow. I bow down in praise, verse 1. Look at it. I will praise you, O Lord. Praise for who he is. Creator, <coughs> Savior, Father, Lover, Shield. It's good sometimes to meditate on the many names of God in Scripture because they point to different aspects of his character. And praise is just reveling in what he is. It's different from thanksgiving, which is the second one there. I bow down in thankfulness because I praise him for what he is and I thank him for what he's done in our lives and more widely in society. And when you come to think of it, we're not so good at that, are we? If you were to tot up your requests to God, they would far outnumber coming back to say thank you. At least they would with me. And that's a pity. Not just because it's ungrateful and we all dislike ingratitude, at least in other people. Um, but because if we develop a thankful heart, we're going to notice the answers to our prayers, which otherwise we'd probably have missed. Let's make sure that we go out of this service having stopped to give thanks to God for something. Third thing I, in, in this bowing down is in trust. Verse 2, <coughs> I, uh, I will trust and not be afraid. The Lord, the Lord is my strength, my song, and has become my salvation. God comforts us in worship. He assures us that he is not angry with us, <coughs> but that he loves us. And that evokes our trust. Often we come to church with burdens on our backs. We're in need of comfort. Maybe there is something we're afraid of. I will trust and not be afraid. Maybe we feel weak and need God's strength. The Lord, the Lord is my strength. Perhaps we feel sad and need his joy. Verse 3, with joy we need to draw water out of the wells of salvation. We bow down in trust, trusting him to meet those needs with which we come. And if we do, we will not go away disappointed. And I guess the other strand in bowing down is bowing down in prayer. It's here in verse 4, isn't it? 
I call on his name. <coughs> we come humbly to God, seeking not to enforce our own will, but to cooperate with his purposes. It's very important in prayer, that is. We don't try and twist God's arm. We say, Lord, what is your plan? I want to be part of it. If we understand that, it explains quite a lot, though not everything, about unanswered prayer. We need to tell him what's on our hearts, what our needs are and the needs of others. And he will hear. He will handle it, even if not necessarily in the way we expect. It's quite easy in our church service to let the prayer time wash over us and um, to sleep through it. I, I find sometimes that I go out of church here and I, have I can recall very little of um, the needs that somebody has taken the trouble to stand up here and pray before God. And that humbles me, because uh, I haven't really made that prayer my own. But the marvel is that the High and Holy One who inhabits eternity, a special phrase that goes right through Isaiah, the High and Holy One who inhabits eternity stoops down to listen. For he wants his children to talk to him. And any of you parents here know you want your children to talk to you. Or so does God. Now those are some of the strands in this awe, this reverence, this bowing down before the Holy One who is among us. He longs to see praise and thanksgiving, trust and prayer as we bow to kiss his feet. But the other side of worship is not absent from this lovely little psalm either. If we bow down in adoring reverence, we also go out in joyful service, according to Isaiah. And it reverberates through verses 4 to 6, the second part of this psalm. Joy and service, those are the two strands there. Let's stay with joy for a moment. It is one of the great fruit of the Spirit of God. The mark of the Holy Spirit being within us is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, and so on. Paul writes in Philippians, rejoice in the Lord always. It's a duty, actually. He couldn't rejoice in his circumstances. The man was manacled in prison. Rats were running across him very lightly. There was a soldier guarding him. He wasn't rejoicing in his circumstances. But nothing could take the Lord from you. And he rejoiced in the Lord. We can't always rejoice in our feelings. They go up and down. Our circumstances, they vary. But we can always rejoice in that relationship with the Lord. The Holy One of Israel is with you says Isaiah. He's my strength. He's my shield. I'm going to draw joy out of his inexhaustible wells. Now, we are meant to emerge from worship full of his joy. Sadly, Christians don't always do it. There's a publican who was encouraged to go to church one day, and his pub was opposite the church, and 
He said, go to church, no fear. He said, just look at the faces of those who come out. I got enough problems on my, on, on my back without that, thank you. Joy is our calling as Christians. And if we don't go out with joy, um, it, it, it's perhaps we don't believe the great truths about the Lord. Self-pity feeds on unbelief. Or maybe there's some unforgiven sin we take out with us, which robs us of joy. Or undue concern with our circumstances, or worry about our future. We haven't left them with the Lord when we bowed to kiss his feet. If Christians constantly draw water of joy from the wells of salvation, it's going to be immensely attractive. And in a day like this, when the growth of the church is very hard in the West, if Christians are radiant with the Lord, boy, that is a very, very attractive thing. And singing, he mentions here in verse 5, and um, Pete, you'll be glad with this, verse 6 as well, shout to the Lord, singing and shouting from the heart coming out to the Lord. That is part of the way of expressing our joy. And we get plenty of opportunity of it here in St. Andrews. Wonderfully possible to praise the Lord with joy. And the service strand in, these second, uh, in the second half of um, this little psalm, this service he points to, he, it's making known, verse 4, among the nations what he has done and proclaiming that his name is exalted. There may not be any difference between those two, but there may. Um, making known may well refer to the lifestyle, the joyous, praising lifestyle that he's been talking about. And the proclaiming may refer more to his, the, 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 the voice, the words of the believers. Both our lives and our lips are involved in the joyful service which should be the outcome of worship. I guess we want to examine ourselves on this because, you know, in almost every church, the actual work, the gutsy work, is done by a very small minority. Most of the congregation think it's enough just to come to the church. But even if we do bow before the Lord in church, half of worship, the service half, is left out. Or maybe our attitude is uh, somewhat grumpy and uh, discontented. That brings discredit on the Lord and gives no idea to people that Christianity is a life full of joy with the Lord. Maybe our, our greatest failure in British Christianity is that we don't proclaim his name. We hardly mention the name of Jesus from one Sunday to the next. But it's not hard to bring him into the conversation. Had a good weekend, somebody asks us in the office on Monday. Yeah, you say, it's a great time, and particularly good time on, um, uh, on, on Sunday with 4,000 other Christians in in Love Oxford, or maybe in bereavement. I don't know how I could have coped 
without the Lord. We can do it without great difficulty if we set our hearts that way. If we know that a joyful lifestyle and a proclaiming is part of our worship of God. We've got our own way of doing it, but do it we need to. Because <coughs> this little chapter of Isaiah makes it crystal clear that bowing down in worship towards the Lord and then going out to live for him joyfully and serving him and other people, that those are the two great constituents of worship. And he's looking to us for that. Maybe, maybe we could echo the first two words of the chapter. I will, I will praise you. I will serve you. Amen. Let's pray then that it may be so. Lord, we have said amen to worship. And we pray that you will enable us to fall at your feet with our needs, with our praise, with our adoration when we come to church and also to go out strengthened with joy in our hearts to make you known by the lives we live and unembarrassed to proclaim your name through Jesus our Lord. Amen.